Like the doctor who diagnosed me told me very clearly, there's no diet you could have gone on, no exercise program you could have joined that would have prevented you from having this body. This is lipedema. This is the condition that you have and there's nothing you could have done to prevent it. And I wept because that's the opposite of what I've heard my whole life, which is that, well, look at you. You clearly are doing something wrong. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul-Smith, and I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I am chatting with Linda Gerhart. Linda blogs at Fluffy Kitten Party, and she posts on Instagram as at Little Winged Potatoes. Linda is someone I have learned so much from over the years about health at every size and fat activism and fat liberation. That is not her day job, but it is something she is personally super smart and passionate about, and she does a ton of free labor for the fat community and the health at every size community, sharing information and her experiences and expertise. And recently, Linda has been talking about her experience as a chronically ill fat person living with lipedema and lymphedema. And I just thought, as I heard her talking about it on Instagram, this, this is the conversation we aren't having and we need to be having. I'll give a quick content warning. We do discuss medical fat phobia and trauma in a fair amount of detail. We also discuss prescription weight loss and weight loss surgery. If any of that sounds not right for where you are today, cool, come back next week. We'll have, I don't know, Corinne talking about soft pants again or something. (laughs) So (laughs) that will be good for you. But for those of you who are up for it, this is a conversation with a lot of education and information. I think it may challenge a lot of what you thought you understood about a concept like medical weight loss. It may also challenge a lot of what you thought you understood about a concept like health at every size. These are some tough conversations about how our current model for activism is failing a lot of the people it's supposed to help. And I suspect wherever you land on that spectrum, it may also cause a lot of us to recognize biases we didn't realize we were still hanging on to about weight and health. And that's good because now we can do the work and we can do better. Oh, and we also talk quite a lot about kittens. So here is Linda, but first a quick break. So if today's conversation matters to you and you like having a space to learn more about anti-fat bias and diet culture without shitty diet ads all around you, I would love for you to support the show in one of these following ways or do them all and get an extra gold star from me. So first up, subscribe for free on your podcast player. If you haven't done this yet, it takes two seconds. It's free. Just add us to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. Next, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, leave us a rating and a review. These are super important. They really help folks find the show. And sometimes I read the reviews I like here on episodes. Third, if you are able, consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get a lot of extra content. You get all my reported essays. You get full access to my Ask Virginia monthly column, Paywalled Friday thread discussions, the Burnt Toast Book Club, lots of cool stuff. And reader subscriptions are how I keep this space ad and sponsor free. So they really are like the whole thing. They're everything. (laughs) And last for extra credit, if you haven't done it yet, why don't you pre-order my book? It's called Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. It comes out from Henry Holt. 
on April 25th, 2023, you can go ahead and order it right now by clicking the links in your episode description or asking for it anywhere you buy books. One of those links is to my local independent bookstore, Split Rock Books, here in Cold Spring, New York. If you pre-order with them, I will sign your copy and they ship anywhere in the United States. You can also ask your library to pre-order it and put it on hold when they do. Whatever you do, even if you do none of the things on this list and you just listen, thank you so much for being here and thank you for supporting independent anti-diet journalism. Hi, Linda. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I love your newsletter and your podcast and all of your work, so I'm just really excited to be here. Well, it's a mutual appreciation society. I have been learning from your Instagram and your blog for years now, so it is a real treat to have you on the podcast at last. Well, thank you so much. Why don't we start by having you, for anyone who doesn't follow your work, just tell people a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah. So my name is Linda and I run a blog called Fluffy Kitten Party, which I chose because I couldn't find a domain name that was allowed and available. So that was what I chose. I haven't written in it for a while, but on that blog, I write about fat liberation and health at every size and my own experiences within the healthcare system. I also have an Instagram account, Little Winged Potatoes, (laughs) which is a Mystery Science Theater 3000 reference for anybody who's curious. Never knew that. (laughs) That was another desperate choice when I couldn't find a name and everything I tried was taken. So yeah, Little Winged Potatoes. I Again, I kind of post a mix of memes and personal nonsense and fat liberation and health at every size content. So it's a real grab bag, but you can always follow me there if you're curious about what I do. But this isn't my full-time job. I have a full-time job doing something completely different as a consultant. I'm just a fat lady who's really invested in fat liberation and health at every size. I need it. And so I really just share my story and my experiences and my thoughts and feelings and opinions in the hopes of, you know, moving things along. I just want to say right now, anyone who's not already following Linda, please follow Linda because just there have been so many issues over the year. I think you're the first person who taught me about terms like small fat. Like you're doing like 101 stuff for those of us who needed it. Thank you. The real feather in my cap is that I am one of the top search results for fat at Disney. Nice. I will rest on that for quite a while, if not my whole life. (laughs) How much higher can one fly? Yeah, that's the dream. So today we are going to talk about lipedema, which is a condition you have been struggling with for many years, but you've kind of only recently gotten properly diagnosed and started talking publicly about this. Why don't you tell us your personal story? Yeah. So hindsight's twenty twenty, and kind of having the diagnosis, I can look back and reconstruct when it started for me. I was a thick, chunky kid, but at puberty, I got really lumpy. Like I was hoping for boobs and I got giant thighs and a fat ass instead. And I was like, well, that kind of sucks. <laughs> but I looked around at my peers and I'm like, yeah, I'm lumpier than you guys. I'm shaped very differently. And so I just kind of carried that and lived my life. And it wasn't until I was in my mid-20s, I was working as a photographer, very active job, lugging equipment up and downstairs, setting it up and taking it down multiple times a day. And I started to have problems with swelling and pain in my legs. And Mm. just for context, I was a baby photographer. So this involved getting down on baby level. And I spent, you know, 20 to 30 minutes at a time on my knees without any real issue. And so when I started having this pain and swelling, like, first of all, this could affect my livelihood if I can't kneel anymore. I went to the doctor 
And they were kind of like, huh, well, your legs are really weird. <laughs> They're kind of firm and like full of fluid, but we don't know what that is. But you should probably just get weight loss surgery. So I ended up at a weight loss surgery seminar, went through a few beginning steps of getting weight loss surgery, but ended up not getting approved because I had terrible high deductible pre-Affordable Care Act insurance. Mm, interesting. So I was kind of saved by my bad insurance in some ways. And so I kind of just sort of said, okay, well, I'll just keep living my life and do my best. And in my early 30s, I started getting a lot of pain like right underneath my knees. I had developed this kind of pad of fat, for lack of a better term, that was like on both sides, so symmetrical and just extremely painful. Like if my little eight pound cat placed one paw beneath my knees, I hit the ceiling. It was like somebody was stabbing me. And so I thought, huh, this isn't normal. Like pain is normal to some degree in life, but like legs that are throbbing with pain all of the time is not quite normal. So I kind of started the journey of going to different doctors and saying, like, do you have any idea what's going on with me? Didn't really get anywhere. I had many, many scans done of the veins in my legs. Veins are healthy, ruled out things like congestive heart failure. And it was actually really frustrating because it's great to be healthy. But when you're in pain and you know something's wrong, mm -hmm. when you get that clean bill of health, it's really frustrating because I didn't have a lot of those metabolic issues that doctors were looking for. So they just kind of didn't know what to do with me. I would get frustrated and be like, just deal with it. And meanwhile, you're still in pain and you have no answers as to what's happening. Yeah. And my mobility kind of decreased. It had really inhibited my ability to do a lot of things because my legs were heavy and painful and swollen. A friend of mine, I was complaining to her about my sore legs. And she said, have you ever heard of this person on Instagram? She has, you know, painful legs and looks pretty similar to you. So I followed the link that my friend sent me and I went to this woman's Instagram and it was like running into a wall because this woman had my body. Like she wow. had my exact body. Her legs looked like mine. And she had a condition called lipedema, which I had never heard of. This was, I think, 2018 or so. And so I started researching lipedema. Like, what is this? Is this lymphedema? Like, how, <laughs> I didn't know anything about it. And as I was looking at the, you know, description of the condition, I thought, oh my God, this is me. This is what I have. And so I, you know, started this process of going to doctors and being like, have you heard of lipedema? I think I might have it. And either they had no idea what it was or they were just sort of like, nah, probably not. Because there is cool. this misconception about lipedema that it only is present in thin women who have large lower bodies, which is not the case. <laughs> oh, so it was like they only diagnose it in someone they don't expect to be fat. Precisely. That's it on the nose. I'm kind of fat everywhere. And that's how I've always been. Like I said, I was a chonky kid. I was mm -hmm. a chonky teenager. I'm a chonky adult. And so they would think, oh, well, you can't have that because you are fat elsewhere. And I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe I don't have it. But, you know, I, I just, I, I had it. I knew I had it. And eventually I found a doctor who specializes in lipedema. He's a surgeon and he was able to diagnose me on site because lipedema has a very characteristic look. You can see it on people's bodies. Mm -hmm. You can also feel it because the texture of the fat with lipedema is not normal. It is an abnormal fat. It kind of feels like marbles. And one of the characteristics of 
what it actually looks like is like kind of like nodules. And some of those nodules can get extremely large. So when I was, you know, 13 and saying, hey, I'm so much lumpier than my peers, that was a big part of it. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of things clicked into place once I had a name to call it. But the bummer is that there really isn't much that can be done for lipedema because doctors, especially in the U.S., don't really know a whole lot about it. As a condition, we've known about it since the 1940s, but it's still kind of a mystery. And if you went to your family doctor and wanted to talk about lipedema, they would probably have no idea what it is. And I've also heard of people going into their doctor's office, telling them to Google images of lipedema. And then the doctor goes, oh, well, you absolutely have that. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's kind of wild. That is wild. Yeah, it's, Yeah. it's been interesting to sort of see the gaps in medical knowledge among medical professionals. So it's kind of the saddest club because you have a name you can call the thing that you experience, but nobody can really help you in any significant way. And there is help available, but it's very tricky to get because this is all very new and experimental and nothing is really evidence-based at this point Mm. because Mm -hmm. people are not interested in helping lumpy fat ladies. (laughs) So just to like, again, you know, do the 101 thing for all of us who are learning here, let's just say like what lymphedema is versus lipedema and how they're related. Yeah. So lymphedema is something that you'll often see in people who've had cancer and have lymph nodes removed where the lymph fluid, which we all have, it's kind of just this waste fluid that flows through our cells is pooling in a particular Mm -hmm. area. So In lymphedema, somebody will have like one arm, typically that's very large and swollen and painful, or a leg. And in lipedema, it's all over and it's slightly different. So how lipedema works, it's believed to be hereditary. So your genes are kind of the loaded gun and hormones are the trigger. So a lot of women will start to see symptoms of lipedema at puberty. And then if they get pregnant, start birth control, that can sort of kick it into high gear where it becomes more of a problem. So a lot of women who have lipedema notice it after pregnancy. I noticed it after starting Depo-Provera. People gain weight on Depo-Provera, but I gained a significant amount of weight on Mm -hmm. Depo-Provera. And that was around the time I started having the symptoms that worried me, like the pain under my knees. All of us have fat cells that are moving fluid in and out all the time. That's how our cells work. With people who have lipedema, the cells are letting fluid in and not cycling them out fast enough. So these Mm -hmm. fat cells are just full of this garbage fluid that your body is supposed to be getting rid of. And it causes pain. It causes swelling. And one thing I did want to note, because I keep saying women, lipedema affects almost exclusively women and people assigned female at birth. I haven't read any cases of, you know, cis men with lipedema. So it is something that is hormonal and kind of lives in this cursed intersection of medical fat phobia and medical misogyny. People are not interested in learning how women's bodies work. Nope, nope, definitely not. Or including them in medical studies until like 10 years ago. Yeah. So these fat cells that are holding on to fluid, it can cause overgrowth of fat. It almost kind of spreads and builds upon itself. And so that can cause compression on your lymphatic vessels and your lymph nodes. And that can cause 
lymphedema later on when you have sort of widespread lymphatic dysfunction, which is where I live right now. I have lipedema and I also have a mild case of lymphedema that is nonetheless very painful and annoying in one of my legs. And that is called lipolymphedema, which is the final stage of lipedema. And it's hard to deal with medically because you've got two things going on. You're full of fluid and nobody wants to work on you. Oh my goodness. So this intersection of these two conditions, both of which your average GP is likely to not have a ton of working knowledge on, this is a lot you're dealing with. I just want to take a minute and say, as someone who considers you a friend, it's been really tough to watch how much you've had to struggle. And, you know, it's really fucking unfair. That's what I want to say. Thank you. I appreciate the support. Like just hearing that it's unfair, it's really helpful to me because it Barriers to getting help are really significant. There's not a whole lot of help available because, again, people don't understand what it is, which I think is a travesty in and of itself. Because if I were interested in the topic of fat people, like if I were an obesity researcher, Mm. I would be interested to find out what's making all of these fat ladies so lumpy and miserable. Like, Why are they in pain? Why are they lumpy? Why is their fat different? What is going on? I think it's really fascinating. And there just isn't really much research. So Uh, The treatment options are limited. I wouldn't even call them treatment. I would call them symptom management. So compression is kind of the frontline treatment, wearing compression garments, pneumatic compression pumps, manual lymphatic drainage massage has been a life changer for me. It kind of gets that lymph fluid flowing and helps with pain and swelling and kind of loosens you up. It's actually really wild. I'll walk into a massage appointment and my shoes and pants will be tight. And I'll leave and my shoes are loose and my pants are loose. (laughs) Wow. So it's like instant or over the course of the session, you really see this difference. I can feel the lymph moving and it's very strange. You can, it's almost like water trickling inside your body. Whoa. (laughs) Whoa. That's intense. (laughs) It's, it's a little weird, but now I look forward to it because, you know, I need it every couple of weeks, mm-hmm. ideally every week, but it's not covered by insurance. So I was going to say, that sounds expensive. And yeah, it's definitely expensive. <laughs> Something insurance would love to pay for. Yeah, for sure. You've talked a little bit on Instagram about looking into surgical options. So do you want to talk a little bit about what those look like? Yeah, at this point, really, the major surgical option is liposuction. So this is not normal, healthy fat. This is abnormal. I don't want to use the term disease, but it's not healthy tissue. So removing that tissue also removes a lot of the pain, the nodules that cause Mm -hmm. that immediate sense of, oh my God, don't touch me. And there's like a network of surgeons. They're not affiliated with each other, but they are plastic surgeons who perform liposuction on lipedema patients. And it is different than standard liposuction because you're not looking for aesthetics. You're basically looking to remove as much lipedema fat as you safely can so that the patient experiences relief. And I've heard of people getting liposuction who say that they feel better being wheeled out of the surgical room than wow. they did going in, even though they come out with like drains on in their right, legs. And they're like recovering from anesthesia. But again, your insurance isn't likely 
to want to cover liposuction Mm -hmm. because people hear liposuction, they think, oh, that's cosmetic. That's Mm -hmm. optional. And a lot of the plastic surgeons are frankly used to being able to pick and choose their patients and not operate on people that they don't want to operate on. So especially for larger patients, it can be a real difficult process to find a surgeon who wants to operate on you, especially if you have lymphedema, which is another complicating factor. So that's been kind of where I've been looking into getting help and finding, you know, door after door getting slammed in my face. But that's one of the treatment options that's available. It is considered experimental because there haven't been any long-term like peer-reviewed studies. There's been some preliminary research into it. Dr. Karen Herbst is one of the researchers who's been really proactive about publishing research papers about lipedema. She also published the lipedema standard of care. But this is all really new. It's kind of the Wild West. And in terms of treatment, gosh, if you go into a Facebook community for people with lipedema, people are just going to scream keto at you until you leave. Yeah. So I want to get into the sort of keto of it all in a minute. But on the surgery piece, listening to you talk, I'm just thinking about what a disservice doctors are doing because plastic surgery has become this specialty that we associate with aesthetics, right? We associate it with nose jobs and boob jobs and lipo for thinner thighs, when in fact it should be very focused on treating conditions like yours and things like burn victims. But because diet culture, because beauty culture, because et cetera, the money for the specialty is not in helping lumpy fat ladies. The money is in doing it in this other way. And I'm just thinking about how much that has distorted, I mean, the ethics of that entire specialty, number one, but also your ability to access care. I mean, and plastic surgeons do a lot of non-cosmetic procedures. I would say most of them are trained to do things like help babies with cleft palates and help people who have skin issues and injuries that require, you know, resetting bones and that kind of intense surgery. People hear liposuction in particular, and they think of the only utility as being making a person thinner for purposes of vanity. And I like literally my legs could look like hamburger meat. And if they didn't hurt, I would be fine with that. Mm -hmm. Like they could give me like wooden pirate legs and I would be (laughs) fine with that. The reason I want this surgery is not because I want to be smaller. I'm just looking for relief from this condition that is causing widespread lymphatic dysfunction in my body. Mm -hmm. And that's it. I think there's also this issue of capitalism within the doctors who treat lipedema, there's a lot of marketing. They're all in private practice. So some of them don't work with insurance at all. And they're looking to market themselves. So they're also looking at a patient and saying, will this give me a good before and after picture that I can put on social media? Yes. Yes. And my legs are probably not going to be beautiful after surgery. I just want them to not hurt. I want them to function well. And how bananas that that's not a success point that a surgeon feels like would market his or her practice effectively. And is it your impression from, you know, being as active you are in the lipedema community that the thin woman with the bigger lower body, that she is more able to access this treatment than someone like you? Oh, 100%. I'm in a couple of like communities online for people who are pursuing or have had or will get liposuction for their lipedema. And it's much easier for thinner patients to 
not only find surgeons who will happily operate on them, but to get insurance coverage, because that's sort of the new frontier is getting your insurance company to actually cover all or some of the procedure. And it is sequential. So typically for people with lipedema, we're not talking one and done. We're talking five, six procedures, possibly things like thigh lifts and skin removal, because it really can be disfiguring in a lot of Mm -hmm. ways. I was wondering, too, if there's a recurrence. I mean, I'm thinking of it similar. I have endometriosis. I had surgery to remove all my endometrial cysts. My body keeps making more endometrial cysts. They can remove the current issue. They can't turn off the problem completely. Exactly. It's exactly like that. And so if you have liposuction for lipedema, you're not looking for a cure. You're just looking to improve your quality of life in the short term mm-hmm. or the long term. It's hard to say because there haven't been many studies. Anecdotally, people can see it come back in other areas. Mm-hmm. I've heard of patients saying that, okay, my abdomen is growing lipedema now, now that it's been removed from my legs. Right. So it can recur. It's really just sort of the last hope for people who are in a lot of pain and want to have some option to live a normal life, even if it's just for five years after surgery. I mean, that's huge. It's definitely not a cure because, frankly, we don't understand why it happens. And until we know the answer to that, until somebody is curious enough to investigate that question of why this is happening to certain people and what is, you know, kicking it into gear, how can we slow it down? How can we stop it? There's not really anything that we can do significant for people with lipedema aside from manage those symptoms and try to provide a decent quality of life and mobility for as long as possible. I'm just like filled with like white hot fury right now because it is, as you said, this intersection with women's healthcare in general, you know, how little we understand endometriosis, how little we understand migraines, how little we understand PCOS, like all of these conditions that like lipedema we have known about for decades. And yet because they primarily happen not to cis white men, we haven't bothered to do the science. And so that bias is just holding us back. And because there's this expectation that women should be okay with living with pain, right? Women's pain is so dismissed and minimized that it's just part of being a woman that your life's going to be full of this hormonal-driven constellation of pain and that we should accept that. I sometimes wonder what I would be capable of if my legs didn't hurt. Like, like what would somebody with endometriosis achieve if they weren't like out of commission in like horrible pain for like a week of every month? Or longer. Like it's unreal that it's allowed. (laughs) It's completely ridiculous. Yeah. So White Hot Fury for that. The other thing I have White Hot Fury about is... That, of course, as you've been on this journey trying to access the liposuction or any other type of treatment you've been able to find, the number one thing doctors have been saying to you over and over is just lose weight, right? Yeah. And sometimes with no modifier, no and, like just just (laughs) Just do that. And I'm like, you acknowledge that I have this condition that is a fat disorder that makes it difficult or impossible for me to lose significant amounts of weight. But I also need to lose like 70 pounds so that you will feel more comfortable putting me under anesthesia, even though if I went to a different surgeon in your same hospital system and was like, well, I would like one weight loss surgery, please. They would happily put me under. No problem with that anesthesia. And I think the, the root of it and how this intersects with fat liberation is people have an expectation that, and I think it's a very Calvinist 
American idea that the outcome is the proof of your virtue. So if you have a fat body, that is evidence that you have done something unvirtuous to get to that point. And that is very hard to untangle because it's so ingrained in who we are, so ingrained in our medical system that if you do the right things and you follow the path and you eat the right foods and you exercise the right amount, if you do the correct things, you should be, you know, the ideal of like the thin person. That is the expectation that most of us have is that we see a thin person and we think that they have done something correct. Mm -hmm. We see a fat person and we think they have done something incorrect and wrong and that, you know, they need to take some sort of corrective action. They need to change their behavior, even if there's no, like the doctor who diagnosed me told me very clearly, there's no diet you could have gone on, no exercise program you could have joined that would have prevented you from having this body. This is lipedema. This is the condition that you have, and there's nothing you could have done to prevent it. And I wept because that's the opposite of what I've heard my whole life, which is that, well, look at you. You clearly are doing something wrong. So either you're at home with your secret Cheeto shovel or, you know, you're lying to me in some way. There's like this suspicion and there's almost this desire because the few things that have been suggested to me was, of course, weight loss surgery. And, you know, I haven't read any evidence that it helps with lipedema. In fact, that's a lot of how a lot of women discover they have lipedema. Oh, interesting. They'll undergo weight loss surgery and they lose weight up top in their face and their chest and their arms. Mm -hmm. And then they have this large lower body and it doesn't budge. And so that's when they sort of go, oh, well, there's something else going on here. Mm. But it's also kind of presented to me like, well, let's just cross that off the list. And I'm like, I don't think that 75% of my stomach is a reasonable barrier for entry. It's not like uh, something that we're just going to try to exclude just for funsies. Yeah, yeah. Just so we can say we did that. I mean, what you're outlining here about the sort of puritanical Calvinist nature of it, I think is just dead on because... What they're really saying to you is like, even if this underlying lipedema is through no fault of your own, that was just how your body was, like you need to atone for your body before it will help you, which is such a bastardization of what, I mean, what happened to meeting people where they are? What happened to do no harm? Even if you did have the Cheeto shovel, right? You still deserve health care. Like you still deserve to be treated like a human being. And that's what's missing. Yeah, for sure. And like, no disrespect to people with Cheeto shovels. Like, I love Cheetos. But yeah, like, there's this almost this desire to rake us over the coals, make us walk through the fire, jump through some hoops before we can get the thing that we need, just to sort of, I really think of it as proving our virtue. We understand that we have to atone and we have to sort of come to this place where we've, you know, been brought to our knees by all of the things that we've had to do just to prove that, you know, we're not actually sinners. It removes your ability to advocate for yourself. If you're having to meet this arbitrary standard and perform the good fatty for them, just the way you're being asked to play this game is so insidious. I think that one thing that a lot of lipedema patients have in common is that they really approach every appointment as like preparing for battle. And the end result is, unfortunately, that these interactions with doctors don't tend to go well because we go in with our dukes up because we're expecting a fight because that's all we've ever gotten from people in those white coats. And I wish that I could make myself smaller. 
I have tried. <laughs> I've tried everything short of surgery. I gave myself gallstones when I tried Atkins. I've given myself kidney stones. I have put myself in the hospital. I have starved. I have exercised until my ankles were screaming at me and I could barely walk. And it doesn't move the needle in any significant way. So, you know, at a certain point, I'm not willing to play that game anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm willing to play ball a little bit. Like if they said, well, we want you to follow this diet before surgery. Sure, I can Mm -hmm. do that. But I'm just not willing to allow myself to be raked over the coals in quite the way they want to. And I'm certainly not willing to just sort of try out weight loss surgery, try out amputating (laughs) part of my stomach in case I'm lying and I do actually just eat a ton of food. I'm not willing to just like shrink my stomach just to sort of prove to medical professionals that I'm worthy of treatment. There's really just this sense that fat people can be changed. So we know that when we get a 90-year-old patient, they're going to have certain risks and there's certain things you have to keep in mind if you're operating on a 90-year-old person who needs surgery. But you know you can't change them. You can't make them younger. Same thing with babies, like operating on small babies and children. It happens a lot. And, you know, it's not a standard surgery. It's not an ideal situation, Mm -hmm. but you can't Mm -hmm. make them into fully grown, healthy adults. Yeah, we have all these protocols to make pediatric surgery safe for their tiny bodies. And like for fat people, it's really just, well, let's make the bodies smaller and more convenient for us Mm -hmm. instead of just sort of allowing for the fact that, yeah, they might be harder to intubate but we can do it. Again, if I want a weight loss surgery, they would find a way (laughs) because that's highly profitable for them. So that is the super depressing story on the healthcare side. Another piece of this I want to make sure we get to, because you've been talking about this as well on your Instagram, is how the health at every size community has really let down folks with lipedema. And in our haste to untangle health and weight, to say, oh, you can be healthy at every size, we often gloss over the lived experiences of chronically ill fat folks. So take us through that. Yeah. So for me personally, there's a lot of shame in not being the good fatty and being the chronically ill fatty (laughs) who, you know, can't go on a long hike because my legs are heavy and swollen and hurt. And so there's this focus on, well, you can be healthy at any size, you know, just do the health behaviors and you know, some people can't. Some people can't be healthy. Sometimes the literal problem is in your fat. So it's kind of this interesting contradiction, which I've been kind of grappling with because I identified with health at every size. I care about health at every size. I want people to be able to access better medical care. And I want us to have this broader understanding of health and maybe treat it more as a resource than an end goal because Mm -hmm. that's going to look different. Like everybody has different access to that resource of health. But yeah, they were just kind of not included in the conversation and it can be a really weird place because, you know, it's a lot of thin yoga ladies giving, you know, advice that you can eat the cookie and you should engage in joyful movement. And literally the only movement that I can manage these days is I hated every second of it, but I did it anyway because I needed Mm -hmm. to get lymph flowing in my body. And so it just kind of feels like we're left out. I also think that there's been a lot of capitalism that has infiltrated health at every size, people marketing services as dietitians and coaches and, you know, get that bread. I want everybody to be able to make a living. (laughs) But at the same time, you know, that activism element of it, of going inside these systems and making substantive changes that produce better health care for 
that patience and mm-hmm. just patience in general, that isn't happening because we're all, you know, busy doing webinars and attending conferences where we all talk about the things that everybody already agrees upon. Yeah. And there's no outward looking, like, how can we actually make life tangibly better for fat people and make it easier for them to access medical care? And I think that's one of the big failures is that, you know, the house is on fire, people are dying, you can't sit on the lawn and talk about the architecture of the building. Mm -hmm. Like, I need you to get in the house and Mm -hmm. pull some people out. Mm -hmm. And that's why I stopped, uh, stopped really identifying as heavily with like health at every size as a movement and really just moved into fat liberation because this is ultimately oppression. This is systemic oppression of a certain population of people based on something that is not within their control. And yeah, I think that I just want to see more action and more attempts to get inside the building and pull out the people who are suffering. It feels like what Health at Every Size or Hayes ends up doing is not that different from what you're experiencing from these doctors that are asking you to perform good fatty stuff for them. Like they're asking you to say like, of course I want to lose weight. Of course I'll do anything, you know, I'll do anything to be thin. And then the health at every size folks are sort of saying you have to pretend you can be healthy even if you're not healthy. And so there's still this performance element and there's this discomfort in acknowledging, yeah, some fat people are chronically ill. Sometimes that chronic illness is related to fatness. I mean, as you've said, lipedema is essentially a fat disorder. And weight loss is not the answer. Healthcare is the answer. But in the haste to promote this idea of being healthy at every size, we're rendering invisible these other struggles. The point where I started feeling this disconnect between like haze and my own life was when I started developing lymphedema in my left leg. And again, it's pretty mild, but even the most mild case of lymphedema is very uncomfortable and painful. And it was affecting my ability to, you know, walk around and comfortably engage in any sort of movement. And there was a lot of shame that came with lymphedema with the realization that like, this is growing. I can't control it. It scares the shit out of me. And it's also making it so that I am one of those fat people (laughs) because I think there is a challenge point with fat people for haze in particular, where we start seeing, you know, people who have lymphedema, people who have chronic illnesses, you know, and their weight is not immaterial. That's the body that they exist in. And sometimes that can come with unattractive conditions like lymphedema. But I think that haze spaces are very uncomfortable with those types of people who have some issues that may be associated with their weight. And I'm not saying caused by, but mm-hmm. associated with because people at the higher end of the weight spectrum oftentimes do struggle with lymphedema and other issues. And there can be a lot of shame in it. Just I can feel the discomfort sometimes when we talk about these issues because they're seeing a fat person who's not healthy, who can't go put on yoga pants and go hike around and mm-hmm. engage in joyful movement. And lumpy fat ladies who are not engaging in joyful movement just kind of get left out. And yeah, that makes me very sad as one of the lumpy fat ladies. I think it's not even that they don't know how to help with the Hayes folks. They're worried it's going to blow up the whole thing, right? Like they're worried that doctors are going to be able to point to a case like yours and say, we'll see. You can't have health at every size. You can't do it. And 
that is such bullshit. <laughs> They're afraid. You can sort of see that in who Hayes spaces kind of lift up as the icons. Like you look at somebody like Reagan Chastain, who does amazing work. I think she's fantastic. She's mm-hmm. also famous for being a fat person who ran marathons. Mm-hmm. So those are the people that Hayes kind of wants as the mascots. Mm-hmm. And I hate to say it, but there are mascot fat people in Hayes who are, you know, the good fatties that they hold up as like, this is a perfect example of Hayes. And, you know, fat people who have messy medical conditions that are difficult to untangle and may have some association with weight. Like, that's the thing is, you know, there may be some associations, not necessarily causal, but fat people are sometimes more likely to get certain things. And it feels like if we admit that that is the case, then yeah, there's just like the whole worldview just gets blown up. And I do like that Reagan has a great piece she wrote about how movement doesn't have to be joyful and health is not a moral obligation. But you're absolutely right. The way her work gets quoted by others is often reinforcing this very thing that I don't think she wants to reinforce. So not to like make you do the thing of like, tell us all how to fix it. But, (laughs) you know, what change do you want to see? How can people be good allies? The thing that I would really like to see is Thinking strategically about social change. How do we create change? What's our theory of change here so that we can make a plan to do outreach to medical professionals? How can we get, you know, this message that fat people deserve health care in the bodies they currently have? How can we get that to exist in hospital systems? How can we, you know, take that nugget of wisdom that we have, that everybody deserves the right to health care, how can we put that into action so that when a fat patient walks into an office, they can be met with compassion and a desire to care for them? Because that's what's not happening. I don't work in the healthcare industry, so I am not great at understanding what the path is to get into the right spaces, get in front of the right people, get in front of the right organizations. I don't really know, but I think that Hayes has often sort of split off and offered this place that operates outside of mainstream medicine. And I want to see it infiltrate mainstream medicine. Like I want to see a takeover where, you know, if a fat patient walks into an office, they have nothing to worry about. They Mm -hmm. know they will be met with somebody who wants to help them and can care for them and is not going to blame their body for their, the failings of training of medical professionals. Mm -hmm. That's what I want. And I I guess that's not really as a strategy, but that's the end result I want to see. And I really want to look to the people who do have those connections, that experience, that clout to sort of think about that problem. I actually am really encouraged how often I do get an email from someone in medical school right now saying they've listened to the podcast or they've read something. And I just got one from someone saying, I was listening to the podcast. I had to pull over and cry. And I'm like, good. I mean, I'm sorry you cried, but good. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, this is what we need is these people who are going to be healthcare providers going in and thinking about how they can blow it all up and rebuild something better. I am encouraged because I do see change happening. It's not happening like overnight, but I do see small shifts. And one thing that I am also seeing is that people are learning about lipedema and getting diagnosed. Again, status club, we can't really help you. (laughs) Yeah, but it is true. Knowing what it is, is the first step of anything happening. So, you know, that is something. Well, we always wrap up with butter for burnt toast. And Linda, I would love to know if you have a recommendation for us. 
So I want to say my adopted kittens. <laughs> Go adopt a kitten, everybody. I adopted yes. two of them recently and they bring such joy into my life and I could literally just stare at them all day. So adopt a pet, go to your shelter, find some cute animals, adopt them and love them. They make everything better. I swear to God. <laughs> and wait, what did you, because when you thought was a girl and then turned out not to be a girl. So remind me their names. Luke and Liam. Uh, Liam used Luke to be Leia <laughs> until Leia was walking across my desk and I looked under the tail and I was like, oh, you are not Leia. <laughs> I have misgendered you. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, now Luke and Liam, the Star Wars theme is, is gone, but they're still very cute and fluffy and oh my adorable. Gosh. They are so adorable. One of them has like a little heart on his fur. Oh my gosh, they're so sweet. They're so sweet. He's a real life Care Bear. My husband sent me a picture of this kitten that was at a local rescue and he had a heart on it. It's like a perfect tabby heart. He's a white cat with tabby spots. He's got a tabby heart. And I just lost my cat Pixel after 17 years of living with her. And I thought, okay, well, my heart is broken and this kitten has a heart on his side. My older daughter is a devoted, passionate animal person who would like us to have about 900 more pets than we currently do. And we have a dog, a cat, and a fish tank, but it's not enough. And I often show her your kitten content because we have like a couple celebrity pets we follow on Instagram and Luke and Liam are on the list. We like to check in on them. Love it. I'll tell them that they are famous. Yes. <laughs> at least locally in my house. Yes. <laughs> well, my recommendation for Better This Week is a TV show I'm obsessed with, Bad Sisters. It's on Apple TV with Sharon Horgan. She was in that really awesome show Catastrophe a few years ago. She's an Irish comedian, actor, writer. And so Bad Sisters is kind of like Irish Big Little Lies, but better. But if you like dark comedy and a thriller, and it's about this family of five sisters, and this is not a spoiler because it's in the first episode, one of them is married to like a total asshole and the other four are plotting to kill him and I just like I just love ladies murdering a shitty man I also <laughs> love to see that I love to see that yeah I just love any kind of content about destroying a terrible man and the sisterhood relationships are beautiful it's really funny it's beautiful because it's in Ireland so yeah bad sisters Apple TV check it out Linda, thank you so much. This was an amazing conversation. I am so appreciative of your work and you taking the time to educate all of us and share all of this. Tell listeners where they can follow you and how we can support your work. Thank you so much for having me. I really love that you're talking about this and that you invited me on. You can follow me on Instagram at Little Winged Potatoes. Again, lots of memes, lots of cats, but you'll also get some fat liberation content <laughs> occasionally. And you can also check out my blog, fluffykittenparty.com. I haven't written there for a while, but I think I should start doing that again. So maybe yeah. there will be a new post. Amazing. Well, thank you again. All right. Thank you so, so much. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. Once again, if you want to support the show, do all the things we talked about in the mid-roll, subscribe for free in your podcast player, tell a friend about the episode, consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter for just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You can find out more about that at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at V underscore Soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism. 